I generally like the idea of asking you to stand uh, for the reading of God's holy word out of reverence for his word, but out of concern for your knees uh, and uh, your calf muscles, um, we're going to ask you to, to go ahead and continue to stay seated this morning because I am going to read all of Luke chapter 15 to you. Um, it is our sermon text this morning. It is a great and marvelous text. And um, it can be found on page 874 of your Pew Bible. Again, that's Luke chapter 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And then the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But, he, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, 
Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here ends the reading. Let's go ahead and start by praying. Father, we call out to you and we ask that you will come near to us through your spirit and in the person of Jesus. And that as we look at your word together, as we try to understand it, Lord, may it move us, may it be fresh, may it be new, may you transform us into the image that you are trying to transform us both individually and also as a church body. We ask this expectantly in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the most thorny questions I think we work through as Christians is the question, what is God's will for my life? Uh, What is his will for the season I'm in, right? What should you study if you're in college? What should be your major? Where should you live? Who should you marry? What should you do for vocation or career? Um, Where should your kids go to school? It'd be great if God spoke to us in like audible voices regularly um, and just told us, God, what, what do you want me to do in this situation? What is your will? Well, Mike, do this. That'd be, that'd be wonderful. That'd be really simple. Um, in my life, that's not how God speaks typically. And um, I mean, honestly, there's probably a handful of times in my life where I was making a decision and I knew 95% or more you know, certainty that this is what God wanted me to do. And that might be partially me. Maybe I'm just more of a questioner and doubter and, and wonderer. But I'm guessing God doesn't give you a whole lot of to-do lists for your day. So if we want to know what God's will is, how do we find out? And the amazing thing is that he's told us what his will for us is. He's told us in the Bible. And the Bible doesn't give us specifics like you should have light roast this morning instead of dark roast or you should marry this person or not this person. It doesn't give us those specifics, but it gives us general principles that apply in all the specific parts of our lives. 
God has told us what he wants for us. Now, we're, we're in a, a section in Luke where Jesus is, is moving quickly towards Jerusalem. His, his time is approaching, and where he'll die on a cross for the sins of the world. And we're in a section where he begins to kind of rally his, his disciples together. He's preparing them for him to leave, and he's teaching them what it means to follow him. So we're looking at discipleship. And there's probably no more basic question to discipleship than what is Jesus' will for us? What does he want us to do? What does he want you to do? And so what we'll see from our text this morning is that Jesus' will for us is to be like the Father who seeks out the lost and welcomes home the prodigal. Our outline is pretty simple. It's God seeks the lost, God welcomes a prodigal, and then God invites the older brother. So if you haven't opened your Bibles, this is a good time to open it. We're in Luke 15. And uh, first we're going to see the occasion for these teachings. Now the reason I'm doing this whole chapter is that they're all related. They're all about God seeking the lost and welcoming the prodigal. And we see why Jesus gives these teachings in the first two verses of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And it's in response to this complaint from the religious leaders that Jesus gives these teachings. Now we gotta pause for a second. When it says that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, there is a sense in which we as Christians, we are all sinners. We're all desperately needing grace. And we are just as much sinners as any person in this city. That's true. But when he says Jesus is hanging out with sinners, he doesn't mean that he's hanging out with Jews who are trying their best and they're imperfect, just like every person, or people who are you know, trying their best but failing. He means he's hanging out with people who don't care about God, don't want to know God particularly, don't pretend to worship God. They're doing their own thing. And Jesus is spending time with them. And this is a problem for the religious leaders. This is a common irritation for the religious leaders. And so Jesus gives these two parables which um, in the end brings two related truths with it. And, 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 and actually, I just want to like sit on this because we, you know, we're like, oh, those, those Pharisees, they're so legalistic. Jesus, of course, he's going to hang out with sinners. But he's hanging out with tax collectors, guys. These are like corrupt people who made wealth because they fleeced poor people. Like, the, there are no nonprofits saying we're going to reach the tax collectors. Um, if you're old enough to remember the financial meltdown in 2009, there was like five years where the, the, the most evil person in America was the Wall Street investment bankers because they made speculative decisions and movements and made a ton of money and crashed our economy. And all of a sudden, people are like struggling and these guys are buying you know, personal jet, jets. And you had the Occupy Wall Street, which was like a big protest. I actually visited it. It was very interesting in, in, uh, in Wall Street. But like the Wall Street investment banker, like how we felt about that person, this anonymous person, that's how they would have felt about tax collectors. You know? What if I told you guys I feel called to minister to the investment bankers? You'd be like, well, are you ministering or are you hobnobbing? Like, are you raising funds or are you ministering? This is, my point is, Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors, we've, we've read it so many times, it doesn't, it doesn't bother us, but it was pretty shocking. It wasn't something that other teachers or rabbis or Jews were doing or thinking was worth doing. And so in response to this, this complaint, Jesus gives these two parables, and we're going to see two related truths that come from them. I'm, I'm going to give a quick summary from these parables. The first one is a shepherd loses a sheep, and so he leaves his flock, and he goes and he searches out the sheep. The second one is a, is a woman who loses a silver coin, 
And so she searches for the coin. And, and the, the point of the two parables is the same. They search for these things, the sheep or the coin, because they're valuable to them. The shepherd doesn't just say, oh, well, I got 99 others. No, the sheep is valuable to him. The woman doesn't say, well, I have nine other coins. I don't need this tenth. No, she searches for it. Now, we don't think in terms of sheep. If you have sheep, that's awesome, but you probably don't. Um, And so losing a sheep probably doesn't hit you with any kind of significance. But what if you lost your car? What if you woke up tomorrow morning and your car is missing? Would you just say, well, oh well. I have a second car, or I have a bike, or there is the bus system. No, you'd look for it. When Mark and I lived in San Antonio, her car was stolen out of our apartment parking lot. I got home on a Sunday afternoon, and her car's not there. And so I called her, because I assumed that she was out somewhere, and I didn't know she was going anywhere. And I said, Mark, where are you? And she said, I'm, I'm in our apartment. So where is your car? And she said, it's in the parking lot. And we had this moment where you just, did we leave it somewhere? Did we like drive it to her parents' house? Then we wondered, did it get towed? And then finally we realized, Someone must have stolen this. And the reason we were so surprised that it was like a 1993, what kind of car was it? Hyundai? It was just a terrible car that had been spray painted and like no one would steal it. Um, And so it was quite a headache for the next few days. But what we didn't do is we didn't say, oh, your car is gone. All right, well, what's for dinner? No, we're like, this is our livelihood to be able to get to our workplaces. We need to find this. And what this text is telling us is that this is how God views those who are far from him. He seeks them. And so the first truth we find from these two parables is that Jesus sought out those who are far from God because God cares about those who are far from him. Jesus spent time with sinners and tax collectors because he cares, because God himself deeply cares and searches out those who are far from God. When God looks out over this neighborhood, Germantown, the 4,000 people, plus or minus 50, or when he looks out over our city of Louisville, 617,000 people, and many, if not most of them, don't know Christ, God doesn't say, well, at least I have a few churches. Oh, well. No. God's heart yearns for those who don't know him. He searches for them, just like if your car was missing or your bike or whatever your means of transportation is, if it was missing tomorrow, it would be a problem for you. You wouldn't be satisfied just because your feet still work. When God looks over the city, when he looks over the neighborhood, he's not satisfied that there are a few churches here and there or a few big churches out in the suburbs. His heart yearns that all people might know him. And he seeks for them. I wonder if, you know, if we're tempted at times to be content with where God's spirit is restless. You know, we live in a, in a country where a church can grow completely by transfer growth because there are enough Christians in America. A church can grow, explode numerically simply because new people are moving to the area or they're leaving their old church. And that's not a, you know, like growing by transfers is not a bad thing, right? And and maybe at their new church, they're growing deeper into their knowledge of God and deeper in their love of God, and that is a good thing. But this parable, it's not about a shepherd. You know, God isn't the shepherd who uh, stays with the flock to fix up those who are, you know, have like 
I don't know, pain or something. It's the God who leaves the 99 to seek out the one who's lost. It's the God who, who, who's not satisfied that he has nine silver coins. He wants to find the one that's lost. That's God's heart. God is a shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek out the lost. I wonder if sometimes we're content with, you know, if we have more people this Sunday than next Sunday, who cares if they're, you know, just other Christians? We're content where God's spirit is restlessly yearning to look out over our neighborhood and want to bring more people to himself. I wonder, and again, look at the examples he's using. It's like the shepherd is, you know, it's his sheep. I mean, do we care as much about a person who's going to live forever as we do about a car that will be rusting in a junkyard within 25 years? Just like we wouldn't say, well, my car is missing, oh well. But do we say that about our neighbors? God cares about those who are far from him. And so Jesus sought out and spent time with sinners and tax collectors because that is who God cared about. It's the first truth we see from this. The second is that Jesus sought out and befriended those who are far from God because God cares more about seeking the lost than about appearances. This one I think is, I wrestled with this one and I'm gonna explain how I wrestled with it, but there's a hard tension to balance, which is first that God does care about holiness. God hates sin. He wants us to be holy and like him. He does not ever wink at sin. That is absolutely true. But yet, Jesus frequented morally ambiguous places. That's a, he went to places that would make you scratch your head and say, I'm not sure a Christian should be there. When he's hanging out with tax collectors, right, this is not like Super Sunday, okay? This is probably closer to a frat party. There's lots of alcohol. Maybe there's immorality happening. Probably a place you'd think, I'm not sure a Christian should be present there. Or think of it this way. If I told you, guys, I've been going to clubs, not like strip clubs, but like the music clubs you dance in, you know, with the lights. I've been going to clubs a couple times a night, hanging out till three in the morning, would it make you uncomfortable? If you told me that, I would be uncomfortable that you were doing that. It just, I just would. Is there anything inherently wrong about going to a club? No. Are there sinful things that happen at clubs? Yes. And Jesus would go to those kinds of places. He went to morally ambiguous places. Now, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, that bothered them. Because the Pharisees, their primary goal was this. They wanted to one day stand before God and say, look how clean my hands are. I haven't done anything wrong. That was their primary goal. And so they would not only avoid sin, they'd avoid sinners or anything that would taint them. But what God is saying is that he cares more about reaching the lost than about appearances of righteousness. God's primary goal isn't for us to one day stand before him and say, look how pure and clean my hands are. Our goal is one day stand before Jesus and hear him say, well done, Good and faithful servant. Well done. You've done stuff in my name for my kingdom. Jesus sought out and befriended those who are far from God. He placed himself in at times morally ambiguous positions and contexts because God cares more about seeking the lost than about appearances of righteousness. That's the first point, is that God seeks the lost. It's in his heart. It's, it's what makes his heart beat. 
It's what he yearns for. He yearns for people far from him to know him. But the second point is that God welcomes a prodigal. I'm not gonna read this whole um, story over again. I'm just gonna give it a summary. But we've probably, most of us have have read the prodigal son before we know the story well. It's one of the most well-known New Testament stories. It's one of those stories that a five-year-old can understand what's happening and a theologian can, you know, hammer his head against the wall to try to understand the depth of the profundity of God's grace and love and forgiveness and self-righteousness and legalism and all that's going on in this. So I'm not gonna pretend to like, you know, have something really new and insightful. I'm just gonna kind of walk through what's there and I think it's gonna be edifying because it is a beautiful story. But to give again a summary, you know, a younger brother comes to his parents and basically says, why haven't you guys died already? Just give me my money and I'm out. And so amazingly they do. And then he goes and he blows it in the worst way, just, you know, drug, sex, and rock and roll. And then he blows all his money and he has the audacity to think, you know what, I'm gonna go back and maybe my parents won't welcome me as a son, but at least they'll pay me a good wage. And, um, and the shock is that not only does the father welcome him back and allow him to come back, but he welcomes him back as his son again. That's a summary. And again, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not gonna have anything crazy insightful or something new or novel, but I will say this, as a, as reading this as a dad is, has changed when I read it before I was a dad, because it's not just the story of a kid who goes off and blows a lot of money and is irresponsible. There's deep heartache in the estrangement of a son from his dad. So you gotta think, you know, a kid that you, you raise, when, when you're a dad, I mean, you, you just don't realize how much your, kid, your parents do for you until you're a parent. But you're up with your kid at night, you're changing their diapers, you're cleaning up their throw up, you're, loving them when they don't know any different. And, and it's unfathomable to imagine such one of my sons one day saying, I don't want anything to do with you. There's just heartache in that. I had an uncle who was estranged from my family. He was actually, he was excommunicated from my family. I didn't even know he existed until I was in middle school. Uh, he was my mom's cousin. My mom grew up seeing him all the time. He had a furious temper. And one day before I was born, he got very angry and he beat up his dad pretty badly. And he, from that moment on, he was dead to my family. Um, now my, my extended family, they aren't Christians, so there is no sense of we need to forgive and be gracious. And so they really cut him off. And I didn't know he existed until I went to a family reunion. It was a big family reunion. There was actually you know, uh, name tags that are places, and somehow his name ended up there. And it was this very awkward moment where people were like, well, how, why is this here, let's remove it. And I was like, mom, who is, who is this guy? That's how I found out that this guy existed. Now, to some extent, you know, again, 20 plus years of excommunication seems a little bit harsh, but a son beating up his aging father is a disgusting thing. We can all recognize that. And there needed to be some kind of consequences, probably some kind of boundaries put in place, make sure it doesn't happen again, some kind of space. That, I think that would make sense. I think that is the wise thing to do if a grown son beats up his father. What would be shocking, though, is if the dad welcomed his son back, don't worry about it, you're my son, there's no consequences. That would be shocking. And that's why the story of the parable son hits us. 
We all, to some extent, whether we realize it or not, we identify with the prodigal son. Humans are incredibly guilty-feeling, shame-infused people. All of us feel to some extent or other we haven't done what we ought to have done. We haven't been as good parents as we know we should have been. We haven't been as good spouses. We haven't been as good students. We haven't been as good kids. We feel guilty. We feel shame. We feel on some deep level, I'm just not enough. I'm inferior. I'm not worthy. And we all identify with the prodigal son. And so what shocks us is how the father welcomes him. It almost seems reckless. How do you know he's not going to do it again? Run off with your money. And God welcomes back the prodigal. Let's just look at verses 20 to 23 because it's beautiful. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father's been waiting for his son. And he sees him while he's a long ways off. He's been waiting for him. He doesn't wait for his son to come to him and grovel at his feet for a while. You gotta think the hurt that the dad went through. He runs out to his son and gives him a hug. And the son kind of has this prepared script, his repentance. And it's funny, so the son says it, and, and, and the image is like the dad saying, yeah, okay, okay, whatever. Go get the fattened calf, my son's back. This son is like, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna be your servant. I don't worry, and, and it's like he's like hand-waving away his, his repentance. The fact that he returned was enough for the dad. It's interesting, sometimes we talk about what does true repentance look like, and it's really helpful and important topic, but I wonder if sometimes we're so concerned on, do you show enough remorse? Do you say the right words? Are you doing the right things? Is there follow-up action that we miss the wonder of God's grace who just says, yeah, 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 okay, okay. I'm just so happy you returned. It was just enough that, that the son returned. It is intentional and absolutely important that the story of the prodigal son comes after the parables of the, the shepherd seeking the sheep and the woman seeking the coin. Because here's the thing, unless we have been welcomed back as prodigals, unless we have, have seen that God loved us at our lowest in our shame and our guilt, unless we've experienced that, then we're, we're not gonna wanna join God in his mission to seek out the lost and to welcome the prodigal unless we know the love of Christ, who loves the unworthy, who welcomes a prodigal, unless we have known that, we're not going to be compelled by that love. So it's absolutely intentional that this comes after those other two parables. Vine Street, Jesus loves you more than you can fathom. I mean, there's a lot of smart minds in this place. No one can fathom how Jesus sought you in your darkest places, at your lowest points, in your deepest guilt, in your biggest failure, God sought you in that. 
And then he wrapped you in his arms and he said, I forgive you and I love you. And he sent his son to die for you. And he made you his child. That's why there's so many places in the Bible where Paul just says, oh, the love of God. Who can fathom it? And God not only sought you out by a street, but he's completing what he began. And he will complete it. And it was the older brother and also the Pharisees with him who hadn't experienced being welcomed as a prodigal and they were unable to join in the celebration of seeking the lost because they hadn't experienced that themselves. But here's the amazing thing is that God still gives the older brother an invitation to reconsider and to join him. This brings us to our third point, which is that God invites the older brother. Look at verses 25 to 31. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Man, there's a lot of ponder in this, and we're not going to be able to touch on most of it. There's some deep insight into legalism and self-righteousness and the fact that all of us have a little bit in us, they're a little bit uncomfortable with how exorbitant God's grace is. Seems a little bit extra. Like really, you're gonna welcome him back just like that? Doesn't have to do any kind of penance. But we're gonna focus on actually how it functions in the story and that through this, Jesus is giving an invitation. And it's easy to miss this if we're familiar with the story, but it's really important. So again, we're, let's just go over this. So the older son is sulking, right? They're having a party for the younger son. The older son's outside the house. He's heard what's going on. He's like, I can't believe, I can't believe you're, you're, you're welcoming back my brother after he did what he did to you. I mean, the older brother would have seen the pain his father went through, right? And there's probably some like loyalty there and like, you hurt my dad. I'm not just gonna welcome you back. And he's angry. This isn't fair. And so the father goes out to him. They have a dialogue. And the father asks the son, why aren't you in? Why aren't you celebrating with us? And the son explains, this is ridiculous. And the father responds and he explains why he's rejoicing. He's like, your brother was dead and is alive and I'm just glad he's back. And then it stops. It's a cliffhanger. We miss that easily. But we don't, we don't know how it ends. Does the son agree with his dad and go back in and celebrate? Or does the older brother stay outside and continue to sulk? and refuse to join God's mission to welcome the prodigal and to seek the lost. And it functions as an invitation for those who are hearing because it asks us to put ourselves in the older brother's shoes. How would we respond? How will we respond? Will we stay outside and say, no, I'm not gonna be part of God's mission of welcoming the prodigals, of seeking the lost, or are we gonna join God in that mission that he's doing? It's an invitation for us. Because chapter 15, there's a lot about God's character that's beautiful, that God is gracious and kind. He is the father who runs after the prodigal, whom we all are. 
but it's not just about God's character. It's also showing us what is God's will for us? What does he want for us? Jesus spent time with sinners because God cares about them. And he wants us to do likewise. That's the invitation. Are you gonna join God in his, in his mission to seek out the lost to welcome the prodigals? Now the invitation here is, is implicit. I will admit that. It's, it's, it's baked into the structure of the story and the way it works and the natural questions it should raise in our minds. But elsewhere in the New Testament, this, this you know, God's will for us to seek the lost is very explicit. So for instance, in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 21, this is at the end of Jesus' ministry after he has been crucified and resurrected. One of the last commands he gives to his disciples, he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. It's like, look, the Father sent me the Son, and now I'm sending you in the same way to do the same thing. Okay, what did the Father send the Son to do? Well, Luke 19, 10 tells us, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Father sent me to seek out the lost, and now I have accomplished what needs to be, you know, what, what needs to be done for the lost to be found. Now I'm sending you out to do the same thing. Join me in my mission of seeking out the lost. Now I have to say something. We could read this and think, okay, this, this, this is an invitation for me to go kind of be like a maverick trailblazer, like, yeah, go do it. Just, just, just go out in this neighborhood and lead people to Christ. But the picture really is, is, is enjoining God and what he's already doing. The picture of the, the shepherds, you know, leaving the 99 and going after the sheep, of, of searching for the coin, is, this, is what, this is who God is. God is seeking the lost. Not he sought, not he will. He is seeking. As we are worshiping God in this building this morning, God is now at work seeking the lost. In this neighborhood, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your school, where you get coffee, and your family doesn't know him. He is actively, currently seeking the lost. And so it's not, hey, go and make this happen. It's, hey, go see where God is at work and join him. That's a lot less intimidating, I think, than feeling like I need to like do this. But it does take a lot more trust. Because when we look for where God is working, that'll lead us to places that we hadn't considered. You know, we think in our mind, God, if you're gonna give me a mission to seek the lost, it's gonna look like this to these people in this way, and it probably won't look like that. But find where God is working. Pray and ask God to show you where he's working. And then join him there in his mission to seek the lost and welcome the prodigal. So, so, so how do you do that? This is just real practical. Where is God at work in your life? Here's some questions to ask. Who wants to be your friend? That's so simple, isn't it? Who, want, who just wants to, be, who wants to be your friend? Who has, who's available? If people are like, I'm so busy, I can't hang out with you. Well, who's available? Who is open? And lastly, who has need? Like, who really has need? Ask those questions and go where those questions answer and you'll likely end up where God is at work. God has invited you to join him, to seek out the lost, to welcome in the prodigal. God has invited us as a church 
as well, not just us individually, but us as a church, to join him in this mission, to seek the lost, to welcome the prodigal. The question is, how, how are we going to answer? So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you with all our hearts that you are God who seeks out the lost and who welcomes a prodigal because if that weren't the case, none of us would be here. If it weren't the case, we would have no hope to stand before a holy God. But we know that you are one who welcomes the prodigal. And God, we want to be a people who joins you in that mission. Oh, we desperately want to see people who are dead come to life. So may you use us in all our weaknesses, in all our fear, in all our unbelief. Christ, use us. We're here, we're available. We want to walk after you. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.